0: Were, were these exciting times to live mm-hmm. in? Were they exciting times to live in?
1: Were they exciting times oh, to yes. live in? Were they? Were they because exciting? They were, you see, because you never knew what was going to happen.
2: Oh, you've got to ask yeah. me questions. See? I can't start talking. However, I was, yes, born, in Dublin. And um, lived... Oh, I think we will have to go in, won't we? See, what I'm doing is I'm... Uh, water watering the sweet corn, weeding it out and feeding in it In many ways, it's terribly sad that they've gone. Jungle, and yet, I think in the our food. own modern life, it would be oh. very out of place to have a few of them left. I think it's better that they all went than that you had a few odd ones left behind. It's a bad habit I have that I, um, Listen more to BBC than RTE, Mm -hmm. because they don't have talking programmes at the hours of day that I like to listen. I've
0: got to to take off the wellies. Well, I I find you in your in your gardening gear, in your shorts and your wellies. (laughs) That's right.
2: (laughs) That's it. And I'm 70 years old. I suppose I should be looking a little bit more dignified and respectable.
3: Look all around here, see these hills, these gentle hills. And then you go round. there's uh, Lot Boffy up the valley, up the Clouche Valley. There's an old road going down there that used to lead to a collection of cottages, which are now ruins. And I always call it the Lost Road. And it's a delightful walk around there. It's all grown over, of course. But there's still the stone walls inside, and stone walls as only the Irish can build them. And then this evening light. How peaceful it all is. And, uh, well, I hope this is where my spirit will always be. And um, I've told my friend uh, lightheartedly, don't be surprised when I've gone, if he hears weird noises at night. Uh, I don't think I'm uh, capable of uttering any banshee shrieks, but uh, uh, I think my spirit will go on haunting this place in a quiet sort of way, because that's how I should like it.
4: We all adore England and we adore Ireland, so there we are. One just longs for England and Ireland to be the greatest friends. They should be, because they're next door neighbours and they're so integrated, aren't they? And one just longs for them to be friends. They can have Ireland can have its independence and everything and, and England's just as a good neighbour. Which it would be too, they have got the right people in Par. <laughs> don't you agree?
5: I go to Temple House and I think well I I don't know how many other Mrs Percival's have come along that avenue, have looked at that tree and every time I go to Dublin I look at the Caves of Kesh. they stand out very vividly on the left and I think of all the Mrs Percival's they must have driven, they must have been carried in litters or in carriages and here I am driving along in my little car. It's a wonderful feeling of of belonging somewhere. And I think where we're so lucky as a family, I think we have cultivated that feeling. And I think a lot of other families who've probably been far longer have forgotten about it.
0: I think it's absolutely impossible to walk through the ruins of an extraordinary house like this one here at Ard Fry on the shores of Galway Bay and not be immediately impressed in spite of the desolation we see all around us, be impressed by the scale of the undertaking um, of the family who came here to build this house 300 years ago. If you just look around you, it's, it's a miniature palace, even now that all of these windows are gaping open, even though the crows and the rooks and the, the birds are screaming through uh, the windows themselves and the, the open roof there, uh, you, you still see everywhere these extraordinary um, decorations, the plasterwork, work, the perfect symmetry of the buildings themselves. Um, buildings, as I say, are built by, by families who came here with a purpose and a tremendous sense of determination that they were going to put down roots here in Ireland and become uh, have a very major role to play in the, in the history of this country. Now, the Anglo-Irish, uh, as I see them, were an extraordinary people who lived out just a single day. I see it always as, as a July day on the canvas of Irish history. And by midday of that uh, metaphorical day I'm talking about, they had this country entirely uh, under their control, at their fingertips. Um, They had that sense of superiority and that sense of self-assuredness, and they almost saw themselves as being invincible. And in fact, perhaps at the end of the day, it was that vanity uh, and that sense of invincibility that was their undoing, because they couldn't come to terms with the notion that you could live in a house like this and look through windows like that at the cottages of the peasantry out there and imagine how a handful of people in those cottages could overthrow this kind of amazing order and power base
1: and I have a lot in common with the Queen she's never heard of me but I've heard a lot about her and we both have Labrador dogs which are trained and work and I'm sure if I met her I would have lots lots in common with her. I naturally have been to Buckingham Palace garden parties and ascots and courts and things. I go back to the days of courts and feathers.
0: When uh, when was the first time you were at uh, Buckingham Palace?
1: Well, let me think now. I would have been I was presented as a girl before I married and I married at nineteen. So I would have been 18. Oh, but, uh, when I was 18 I was, 18, I was born in 1894. And I naturally, in the course of events, I was presented at Buckingham Palace as a matter of course. We, were all, we all sat in the mouth hours and hours and hours. And when we got into the palace, I don't know whether you want the less, well, unsuitable details, it was, it was, and there was only one loo in, in, the, in the palace, <laughs> and so there was a gorgeous room with red red, red boucade on the walls and lovely pictures and things, and about forty poses laid out in a row, <laughs> and a lot of doubtful dogers wondering whether they'd patronize them or not.
0: I can almost just people this great hall here with the amazing men and women who passed through the halls who led out larger than life, extraordinarily colourful lives uh, with great assuredness and great self-confidence as they they established themselves, not only here in Ireland, in the houses they built and in Britain from which they to an extent drew a validation for their existence and of course uh, an assurance of its continuity but from this house people would have gone out all over the world, into the British Empire of the day, as soldiers and as statesmen, and sometimes as missionaries. And, of course, the daughters would have gone and married into the the houses of the other nobility. Here, at home, in Africa, certainly, throughout India. But even more exotically, uh, you will find that families like this would have had daughters married all over the face of Tsarist Russia. And that gives you, as you kick your way here through the the. Crumbling glass and the decaying roof timbers, which probably would have been brought from here, from the West Indies to here. But it gives you some idea of the scale of the tapestry of that July day that this extraordinary race of people, the Anglo Irish, lived through.
2: I would love people to know of those wonderful breakfasts that you used to have in those days. They were a meal which today. If you had them for a luncheon party, you'd think was very grand. The breakfast always had a very big copper uh, plate warmer, and on the copper were the hot dishes. They usually were one fish dish. It would either be Kedgeri, or Kippers, or Finn and or perhaps co Salmon. And then you'd have either game, if it was the right time, if you a game pie, or devil the devil legs of turkeys, or um, yes, well that was about the devil. And then there would be uh, a, an egg boiler, which was a nice little thing, the, the shape of a large egg, silver thing, and inside it was a place for the eggs to go, and you'd have a, a, a methylated underneath, and people would boil their own egg to eat with their slices of ham, because the people who who liked to have the boiled eggs usually had boiled egg and slices of ham. And then there would be lots of marvellous homemade jams and honey, and um, hot scones made for breakfast and wrapped up in a table napkin, very well arranged. But I remember a lovely incident. I was staying at McGarrett one day and it was one of the shoots and a friend of um, Dom Oranmore's called Matt Ridley and he were talking about how they would take the drives that day. And Dom said, Oh well it didn't really matter, there was so there was no wind and they could take the drives whatever way he liked. Matt could suggest it. I looked out of the window and I said "'No, there isn't a wind, but if there was, it'd be in the east.' So Matt said, "'What on earth are you talking about?' Dom looked out and he said, "'Yes, you're quite right, Ingrid.' He said, "'I don't understand you, Irish. I never will understand you, Irish. "'It's been agreed that there isn't a wind.' And the woman looks out and said, "'But if there was, it'd be in the east.' And the man looks out and he agrees with the Stuff and nonsense. But I said, "'No, it's not. It has the look of an east wind.' In the west of Ireland, when there's an east wind, there is no colour in the landscape.
0: This is probably um, a breakfast room, judging by the, the size of it, and it's just off the, uh, the great dining room, and it still faces east, which I think many of them would have. And it reminds me of an amazing story um, which I heard in Uclarard some years ago from um, a Rear admiral of the British Navy, uh, Admiral Pankridge. And he was perhaps one of the, the, the very last of uh, the ascendancy on whose life uh, a direct attack was made by, it's believed the IRA or certainly uh, some militant Republican group um, in the 60s at the height of the fishing campaign. At one time,
6: uh, no, no, they, took out, they, they decided to take out a large number of fish And in ten days, they took out nearly 300 salmon out of my pool, and I could do nothing about it. Uh, I then threatened someone with prosecution, and then a few gentlemen, I knew who they were, decided to try try to intimidate me. It was not political at all. And so they put some gelignite uh, behind my garage and a hell of an explosion, it blew up, blew all the windows in on the, on the, on the, on the side of the house, on the, uh, where the, where the, where the uh, um, kitchen was, all those windows went for sex. My wife was hopping mad, uh, because, you see, she had a, a very, very special omelette, and souffle, which had been made, it had finished up full of glass. Anyhow, she didn't worry, she, she went out, she, she, she wasn't going to be intimidated like that anybody. Or was I.
0: Now, the house we're in this morning was one of the truly great houses in County Galway. Art Fry House, here on the shores of Galway Bay, was built by the Blake family. And it was built with, uh, with money, which the family amassed uh, literally uh, from the four corners of the, of the then world, from the West Indies, from India itself, from wherever the family had set themselves up in banking and in commerce, all over the, the British Empire. But it quite literally came to an end on the gambling tables of Monte Carlo because the last Lady Walscourt gambled away this house and the lead on the roof had to be sold to pay her gambling debts and it gradually fell into ruin and into decay. And then about 20 years ago, three grandnieces of the family who had been living on the Isle of Wight came back here determined to rebuild or to recreate the life of the great house. But they were, they were clearly overwhelmed when they saw the, the state of the ruin and decay. And they decided instead to go to live in the courtyard in the farm buildings down there, a couple of hundred yards away. And when I first uh, got to know them, they were living a most frugal and extraordinary life, sleeping on camp beds, cooking on kerosene stoves and attempting to bring back to life the house itself, to bring back the, the possessions of the family Things like the the portraits, things like the the great piano, which had been plundered and pillaged out of this house uh, in its final days. In fact, the piano was repossessed uh, from a pub in Galway, and the the great portraits, which no longer could fit in the in the smaller house down there, they actually had to cut the great gilded frames, roll up the canvases, and make them fit in the in the new house they were in. But they were held in such affection by the people around here, they had, they had such admiration for their determination, for their steely determination really, to try to recreate some of the the life uh, of, of the great house. They were passionately interested in hunting and in painting and in riding. They were really Renaissance ladies and I I myself had some extraordinary nights with them during their, their parties, masked balls at New Year's Eve. And, and all the time they wanted to, to recreate this world and to be part of it. And uh, I think there were few people I've ever met who had such a jollier and such a happier outlook on life. They were known as the, the Three White Mice, or who had such a passion and such an intensity for the, the beauty of the area here, for the, the landscape all around, for the, the sunsets in Galway Bay, and for the love of the people of, of County Galway who really took them to their hearts and realised what it was that they were at, what they were trying to do to, to live in the shadow of their past.
4: We love doing, we love painting, we love riding. <laughs> we, we love. The only thing I don't like is um, sweeping the floor and doing the housework. <laughs> 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 I don't think there's anything else we particularly dislike. <clears throat> no.
2: Getting up in the morning. <laughs> I don't
4: mind that in morning. No, I, I don't, don't either. A bit. If it's a lovely morning, I'd rather be up. It's lovely, heavenly out there in the early morning—a lovely, calm, sunny morning. Oh my goodness! We've got every bird you can think about. Right. There, and we? another thing that's heavenly here—the sunrise and the sunsets are absolutely when they are absolutely beyond a millionaire couldn't wish for anything better, could no. they? No. And all it's a priceless, and really. something. I mean, it's just out of this world. It's so beautiful sometimes. All the reflection on the sea and everything and the peace of it—it's just sort of indescribable. All the lovely wild, the wild and ducks, all the sounds of the all the different wild, sea birds and things—it's just indescribably beautiful, really. And the sunrises are too beautiful for words. And I think all the fascinating the colours, different kinds I mean of the sky, the, the clouds formation and the whole, the whole colouring and everything mountain. and the reflection on the sea—I think that's one of the most lovely things, with the sunsets and sunrises. It's absolutely out of this world, I think. Mm.
0: How how would you feel about having to leave Art Fry if the the necessity ever arose and having to turn your backs on all of this now?
4: I can't imagine. I'd die, I think. (laughs) I really can't imagine it. In fact, I don't even like going away. I always have the awful feeling I might not come back. So I haven't been away since 19... What was it? (laughs) Seventy. Seventy-four, I think, it was the last time I really went away. I've been round Ireland, but the last time I actually left, you know, to go to England was seventy-four. I mean, I love going, as long as I'm upset I'm coming back, but I, having waited all the, those years to get here, you know, i always had the horrible feeling if one went away, well, I might not get back again. I really can't imagine leaving it.
0: Hunting was, um, was of course, one of the great passions uh, for the for the Anglo-Irish. And as we stand now here behind this great oriel window, I'm reminded of something that the great historian of Ockram, Martin Joyce, once told me. As we stood on the hill of Ockram over the bat- overlooking the battle site on a chill November's evening, he said to me, "Just look out there, and see what you see, and I'll tell you." that for me, I can people every rill and valley and every riverbed with the opposing armies of James and William in 1691 in that two or 300 acres of ground uh, stretching away forward for us. And I think it is a wonderful image. And in a sense, whenever I stand in the ruins of a great house like this and look out over the lawn, um, I too feel myself peopling those fields stretching away from us there with the hunt as it moves off from the great house, moving off across those stone walls which have made Galway hunting so famous. And I think of stories told to me by people who saw the hunt not as some kind of brutal conflict between man and a, a, a graceful animal, but as a science which had to be learned, as a science which had to be developed, a science which took simple hunting hounds, uh, which aren't the cleverest dogs in the world indeed, and turned them into, marshaled them into amazing tracking and hunting and and killing animals. And the the skills of casting hounds and the skills of directing hounds, and as Lady Molly O'Rourke would say to you, you've got to be able to help your hounds. You, you just can't hang around there and expect them to do it all for you. I, I remember asking her once, "How do you, how do you, how do you, how do you assist hounds?" And she said, "You've got to help your hounds." I'd do anything.
1: I'd go, so through, through, through I don't know what. Fire if hounds needs me, but if they don't need me, I won't do anything.
0: You didn't actually have your hands tied behind your back, did you, when you were were jumping as a little girl? I
1: did. did. He wanted me to have an independent seat. I think he could have done it better ways. Anyway, I loved him, and so I did anything he wanted.
0: (laughs) Now, what what, what do you mean by saying, if if hounds wanted you to do something, you'd do anything for them?
1: They need you, I said. Hounds need you. If you're a huntsman, they need you very often. They might be in trouble or they might be killing a fox or they might be marking the ground or they might need you to have lost the line and want you to uh, cast. Uh,
7: part of a huntsman's work is when, hounds, when his hounds check to, um, to cast his hounds in such a way that he will try and hit off the line. And normally what a, a good huntsman does is that he normally casts in the opposite way to where he thinks the fox has gone and he will cast in a circle in the opposite way to where he thinks the, the, the hounds have gone and normally what happens is when he starts his circle as he casts round generally before he completes his circle he's lucky enough to hit the line off uh, um, As I say, it takes takes a huntsman with great skill to to cast his hounds well. Uh, Generally, they know they have a couple of hounds whom they rely on completely. And if they can see one or two hounds uh, um, uh, responding to a line, well, uh, they get great assistance that, that way. All right. Thank you very much.
0: So what, over the years, then, has been the, the magic of, of the hunt for you?
1: I wish you'd stop that nonsense. There's no magic about hunting. It's silly. It's a silly question. Switch it off. I'm off now. It's a silly question. There's no such thing as magic at hunting. One likes hunting or one doesn't. You might as well say, what's the magic about swimming? I like that just as much. Or dancing. What's magic about anything? One enjoys the physical exercise. You might say, what's magic about making love? Well, there's a little more magic about that. Perhaps you've got to have personal relationship as well, but still.
0: You've devoted a great deal of your time, though, to, to hunting. Surely it it, it, it must have a, a fascination for you and an attraction yes, for you. of course
1: it has, but there's not... Of course it has. That's, that's the end of the story. It has. One likes doing it. One has a fascination for it. It's an intellectual exercise which one enjoys. That's all.
0: And the, the intellectual part of that exercise is Killing in the... the
1: fox. Hunting the fox and catching him or putting him to ground, accounting for
0: the fox and the directing of the hounds.
1: Well, that's part of it, isn't it? Now, I really must go, because I've got to go and see somebody at six o'clock.
0: Now, of course, there is a darker side to these great houses, and uh, I encountered that for the first time about three years ago in a very personal sense, when I was going through some documents in the National Library, trying to trace aspects of my own family history. And uh, I was looking at the Clonbrock papers because the third Baron Clonbrock was a contemporary of my own great-great-grandfather who was a small tenant farmer in East Galway. And at that time, the Clonbrocks owned 28,000 acres of land, about one-fiftieth of the entire of County Galway. And there were these two chilling documents in those uh, family papers, the Dillon family papers. The first was uh, an edict from... The then Lord Clonbrock, Robert Dillon, was 23 years of age, to his steward John Mason, laying out the terms of what looked suspiciously like a, a great clearance of tenants, and it simply said that uh, every small farmstead in the locality could from there on in have just three people living in that house. There was the, the old man or the old woman as it described it, and one son or one son-in-law if he be of good character in the locality. All the rest were to go away and uh, with a flourish the young Clonbrock signed this document and it was given to his steward and John Mason was to decide who was to go or who was to stay. And in the same collection of papers there was this other document a collection of riddles and rhymes and teasers in Latin and in French and in English, written by the, the ladies of the same great house. And the one that sticks in my mind uh, was a little French riddle, which goes something like this. Je suis le capitaine de 24 soldats. Sans mort, Paris, son prix. And I, I wrestled with that for a little while, trying to figure out what it could possibly mean. And uh, in a literal translation, it simply means I am the captain of 24 soldiers, and without me, Paris becomes, or Paris is captured. And of course, it really is the letter A, the first letter of the alphabet. But it was quite shocking when I came across it for the first time to think that while the third Baron Clonbrock was preparing a a clearance of his estate, that the ladies of the house were dallying with, riddles of that kind in Latin and French. I suppose sometime in the late 70s and early 80s, collecting the stories of these great houses and the the families who had lived in them became something of of a grand passion of mine because I realised at that time that There was very little time left in which to do this uh, because there was a job to be done there in establishing a trust with many of these elderly ladies, dowagers, countesses, baronesses, in assuring them that they weren't going to be exploited in some way or they weren't going to be held up to ridicule Uh, in whatever would be broadcast on radio. And it took a while to establish that trust. And I remember once in Strokestown, in the case of uh, Olive Hales packing a man, she knew she was dying. And she agreed to do an interview on one condition. And I found it an extraordinary request at the time, but now I realise precisely what she was asking. She said, I will tell you my story, young man, if you don't take my dignity away. And then... In early March 1984, while I was preoccupied with the fact that time was running out for other people, I had a a rather sudden and sharp and unexpected uh, jolt myself and uh, a very clear intimation of my own mortality. When I was diagnosed as having cancer, I was uh, summoned by my doctor, um, a most thoughtful and kindly man whom I will always remember with the greatest of affection, who told me that I had a little problem and I had a battle of my own on my hands. He told me I had cancer, but he said, you know, you're young, you're healthy, I think you've got a very positive attitude, Uh, don't let it get you down. And it actually didn't. And I had encountered a couple of days before that a couple of lines of uh, poetry from a Czechoslovakian journalist who had been executed in Berlin by the Nazis just in the final days of the war before the Russians arrived in the city. And somehow it sprung to my mind immediately, and it was, there were just two lines I grasped onto, and they just powered me through this quite difficult period. And the man was called Julius Fuchek. I know virtually nothing about him, but just before his own death, um, he, wrote, uh, he wrote these lines... I loved life and went to battle for its beauty. And it was just that idea or that concept which uh, pushed me or pulled me through the crisis that was now unfolding for myself. And at the time, I was preoccupied with a a number of things, but one of them was, in fact, uh, finishing this Looking West series. Obviously, I had uh, very grave concerns uh, for my family more than for myself. I wasn't very... um, terrified of the prospect of of having to fight for my life or anything like that, but I was concerned on a personal level for my own family. But equally, I had this unfinished business, which was at least four or five more programmes in that year's series, 1984, which had been recorded uh, and were now lying on my desk in a mound of uh, unedited and unravelled tapes. But I went into St Luke's uh, around Easter time of 84 and insisted that I would undergo the treatment that was necessary for me on a uh, condition that I was released uh, once a week to go into the studios in Donnybrook where I then edited the programs over a period of two or three weeks while I was receiving uh, chemotherapy at the time um, and all the time of course I was extremely conscious is this ever actually going to get on air and we're going to record it now but is it ever going to get on air? Well, it did, actually, Um, and it is one of the most memorable programmes for me, obviously, in a personal sense, because it it helped me through a difficult period in my life. It was also, in a a sense, a a semicolon in the lifespan of this Looking West series, which actually did run for another two or three years, Um, and it it just gave me a purpose at that time, uh, which was important to me.
1: I was probably the bride of the season. I had, we had a huge London wedding. Was, and the the firm that were doing the wedding had to send back for more staging. for the, There were so many presents. They had to send back for more. And uh, I lived through all that. And then, of course, my husband was whisked away from me and killed almost at once. But we spent a honeymoon at Hind Head with a... a a chauffeur and, and a ladies' maid. But I don't know that I had any other recollections beyond the, the great fun that London was for, for the days before the war when you went to a dance every night. And you danced then until about half past, half past six in the morning. You wouldn't go to bed at half past ten or something. And your mother will you, so she, poor dear, sat on the bench until about six in the morning, every night of the week.
0: For over 300 years, the Packenham Mahans, one of the country's great Anglo-Irish families, have been closely associated with the history of County Roscommon. But early next week, that historic link will be broken, when 86-year-old Mrs Olive Packenham Mahan, whom you've just been listening to there, Bids farewell to the family's magnificent ancestral home at St.
2: They and will regretted very house. much themselves the lack of servants and things, but to me it still always had a, 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 a very, very grand feeling. I liked being in the house. Was such wonderful furniture and um, Olive had a tremendously strong character. One moment she'd quite offhandly tell you, I thought I was going to shoot myself last week. I got the gun out, and then I remembered that I'd settled the house on my son, and I'd have to live for seven years. So it would have spoiled everything if I'd shot myself, so I had to put it away. It's typical of her, though. You'd know very well, wouldn't you, that she'd never have shot herself. But she believed at the time, I think, that she might be
0: What does the future hold in store for you?
1: Nothing, death. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to be put away in this nursing home in near Newbury, and uh, well, then of course I shall die, and that's that's my future.
5: One thing I do find very hard in this country is the way we leave our ruins standing. If for any reason we couldn't live at Temple House, I would like to see the Irish Army move in and demolish it. And we would grow ivy on, over it or something and, and, and move into a small, and convenient house. But I, I can't bear the way these ruins stick up all through Ireland, no trees, no nothing. I think if you loved a house, and it is of no useful purpose to anybody, demolish it, flatten it. Even if it takes the last of your money, be quit of it. You look rather surprised. <laughs> oh no, I think uh, uh, it's the same. Going back to horses again, people retire their old hunters. They leave the child's pony out in the field. They think that's kind. It's not. If a pony or a hunter has been loved and used and worked, it, it's lonely. Why is life going on and it's parked out in a field? And it's exactly the same with a house. If you know further use for the house and it can no longer be kept up get rid of it flatten it finish it
2: you really do look horrified
5: (laughs) oh no i think a clean end is the best for houses and horses
0: i was present on a number of occasions when families were finally being forced to put up the for sale sign. And it was truly heartrending. And you can imagine how it must have felt to be forced to leave all of this behind simply because the times had changed, the costs were absolutely enormous. But I would say of them that by and large they did not go easily from houses like this, they did not surrender without a tremendous struggle. I suppose for me, probably the most poignant moment of all was standing on the doorstep of Tolara Castle, as uh, Lord and Lady Hempel prepared to leave it a number of years ago.
8: Uh, there's so many things to tell about the place. As I say, it means so much to me. The, the, the walls. The, 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 everything. When I go out every evening round the yard, and I come up from the stable yard and see see the castle stand, castle standing over me, it's something magnificent, peaceful, quiet, seems to talk to you. And every evening, when I'm here by myself, I am never lonely. The whole place seems to just look after one and protect one. And you go down. I go down the yard every night. the winter to feed the horses. It was quite a long way down. Walk across the courtyard and I look up at the castle and it talks to me. That 15th century castle just talks to me. I feel it protects me. Then the rooks, they're talking to one, whether it be in the morning or the late evening. And then you see the walls of the place and we wonder to ourselves what it must have been like before. Well, I just feel now, and I hope and pray, I haven't slept for nights, and I get less and less sleep at the thought of what's going to happen on Thursday, and worse still, when people ca- when the furniture starts moving out, well, I just don't know where I'll be, but I only hope that whoever does get it and buys it will look after it and love it as much as we all have. It is the most wonderful place, I'm afraid I can't say any more. I've tried my best, and I hope you'll just realise, and all will realise, and everybody realises what as sad as it is, just to be leaving here.